Hello, and welcome to this CCHCPE podcast compiled by noted tax authorities Sydney Kess and Barbara Weltman. This CCHCPE podcast may be used to earn valuable CPE credit. Please visit the CCHCPE podcast site at cchpodcast.com. At this site, you will be able to enroll in a CCHCPE podcast course. You will also be able to download an outline of the course that provides a summary of and citations for each key point, new case, and ruling, as well as charts, examples, and other valuable information related to our recorded discussion. This CCHCPE podcast contains citations to CCH's services, the Standard Federal Tax Reporter, the Tax Research Consultant, and the Federal Tax Guide. In your course outline, we refer you to the specific paragraphs in these services where each subject is covered in greater detail. If you are a subscriber to the CCH Tax Research Network, you will have the added capability of direct links within the outline to the citations and court cases. You will also be able to enroll in the final quizzer for this course. We suggest that you listen to this CCH CPE podcast course and follow along in your outline. You may print out the outline or view it on screen. At certain times during the podcast, we will ask you to test your knowledge by answering study questions. These study questions are designed to enhance your learning experience. The answers to the study questions are found at the end of your outline. You may pause this podcast at any time to access the CCH Tax Research linked material or to review the study questions. After you have listened to the complete podcast and reviewed the study questions and answers, you will be ready to take the final quizzer. You may print out the final quizzer for review and then submit your answers directly on our CCH CPE podcast site. Immediately after you submit your completed final quizzer, it will be automatically graded. If you successfully complete the final quizzer with a grade of 70% or greater, you will receive the recommended CPE credit. A CPE certificate of completion will be awarded and the certificate will be printable. Please refer to the CCH CPE podcast site at cchpodcast.com for complete information. So now, on with our program. Our focus is on using a primary residence and a vacation home as a personal tax shelter. A tax shelter is defined as a financial arrangement that reduces taxes. As you'll see, being a homeowner creates tax-saving opportunities. Owning one or more vacation properties can multiply these opportunities. As of the last quarter of 2006, the home ownership rate for Americans was 68.9%, so this topic has broad application. We'll talk about the tax breaks that apply when you purchase a residence, the breaks that can be claimed during the period of home ownership, and the breaks applicable upon the sale or refinancing of a home. Home ownership is popular for several reasons. First, people generally want to own their own homes. There's a feeling of pride of ownership. Additionally, low interest rates have allowed more people to get into the housing market. In April 2007, the average rate for a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage was under 6%, and a 15-year fixed-rate mortgage was under 5.5%. A third reason is the numerous tax breaks that support buying and owning a home. First, let's examine the tax breaks that come into play when purchasing a home. And as you'll see, certain taxpayers may qualify for unique tax breaks. First-time home buyers in the District of Columbia can claim a one-time tax credit for making the purchase. This credit is up to $5,000, or $2,500 for those who are married and file separate returns. 
A first-time home buyer is defined as an individual who has not had a present ownership interest in a principal residence in the District of Columbia for the one-year period ending on the date of purchase. The credit is phased out for those with modified adjusted gross income over $70,000 if single or $110,000 on a joint return. No credit may be claimed by singles with MAGI over $90,000 or married couples filing jointly with MAGI over $130,000. The credit is claimed on Form 8859, District of Columbia First-Time Homebuyer Credit. Here's a practice pointer. The credit applies only to homes purchased before January 1st, 2008, unless Congress extends the credit as it has in the past. The purchase date for those building a home is the first day of occupancy. One of the key difficulties in buying a home is obtaining affordable financing. Low-income home buyers may qualify for a mortgage interest credit regardless of where they live. The credit is claimed annually by homeowners who continue to qualify for it. A qualified homeowner must receive a mortgage credit certificate, or MCC, from the state or local government showing the credit rate used to figure the credit. The certificate also lists the certified indebtedness amount on which the credit is based. Another practice pointer. Low-income individuals interested in home ownership must obtain the certificate before buying the home. Also, if a homeowner with an MCC refinances an outstanding mortgage later on, he or she must obtain a new MCC to continue claiming the credit. A new MCC can be issued within one year of refinancing. The credit is claimed on Form 8396, Mortgage Interest Credit. The amount of interest deductible as an itemized deduction must be reduced by the amount of any credit. Coming up with the down payment and closing costs also can be challenging. Those with IRAs can look to these savings plans for some help. While the distribution is taxable, the 10% early distribution penalty for those under age 59 and a half is waived for withdrawals up to $10,000 per lifetime that are used for first-time home buying expenses. A first-time home buyer is a qualified person if the individual, and if married, the individual's spouse, had no present ownership interest in a principal residence during the two-year period ending on the date of purchase. The withdrawn funds must be used for qualified acquisition costs no later than 120 days after withdrawal. Qualified acquisition costs include the costs of acquiring, constructing, or reconstructing a residence. These include usual or reasonable settlement, financing, or closing costs. A planning pointer. If the sale is delayed or falls through, penalty can be avoided by rolling the funds back into the IRA no later than the 120th day after the funds are withdrawn. In the case of Roth IRAs, contributions can be withdrawn tax-free at any time. Earnings on contributions can be withdrawn tax-free only if the distribution is made after the account has been in existence for at least five years, starting with the first day of the year it was open provided the Roth IRA owner is at least age 59 and a half, or before age 59 and a half, only if used for first-time home-buying expenses. Again, a $10,000 lifetime limit applies. The waiver of the 10% early distribution penalty for first-time home-buying expenses does not apply to withdrawals from qualified retirement plans. However, it may be possible to borrow from the plan to purchase a home. 
The loan option applies not only to qualified plans such as 401ks, but also to 403b annuities and 457 government plans. If the plan permits loans, then up to $50,000, or 50% of the account balance, whichever is less, can be tapped. While planned loans generally must be repaid in level payments over a period of no more than five years, loans for home purchases can be spread over any reasonable period, which may be 10 years, 15 years, or more. This exception to the five-year repayment period does not apply to borrowing to improve a principal residence or to buy a second home, only to the purchase of a principal residence. Here's a practice pointer. If the homeowner is not a key employee and the home is used as collateral for the loan, interest deductions for the borrowing, as we will discuss later, are allowed. It's also possible to take a hardship withdrawal from a 401k plan or 403b annuity to buy a home. These withdrawals, while taxable, are not subject to early distribution penalties. The IRS gave a break to individuals who, after February 28, 2005, took hardship withdrawals from these plans or IRA withdrawals to buy a home, and the sale was canceled because of Hurricane Katrina, Rita, or Wilma. Specifically, they were given additional time to recontribute withdrawn funds, income tax and penalty-free, before March 1, 2006. This date has not been extended. One way to obtain a lower interest rate, which means lower monthly payments, is to pay points to get the mortgage. A point, which is a type of prepaid interest charge, equals 1% of the amount of the mortgage, or $1,000 for a $100,000 mortgage. If a borrower pays points in order to obtain a mortgage to buy or build a home, points can be deducted in full in the year of purchase. Here's a practice pointer. Homeowners are not required to deduct the points in full and can opt to amortize them over the term of the loan. This may make sense for buyers late in the year who do not have sufficient deductions to itemize and are better off claiming the standard deduction. By opting to amortize the points, they lose out only on the portion for the year of purchase but retain the write-offs for the balance of the loan term. Other costs to buy a home, such as closing costs, are not immediately deductible. However, these costs are added to the basis of the home in the same way as capital improvements, which is discussed later in this program. This has the effect of minimizing the gain on a future sale of the home. At this time, please review the study questions in your outline. Now let's discuss the breaks that accrue during the period of home ownership. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, or BLS, in 2001, the latest year for which statistics are available, homeowners spent $39,518 on average on expenses like mortgage interest payments and property taxes, as well as on maintenance, utility, security, and insurance costs. This means that Americans devote anywhere from 31.3% to 62.9% of household income to their housing costs. BLS says that owners of all types of vacation properties, including conventional single-family dwellings, as well as condos, apartments, and timeshares, spend an average of $3,200 a year. Most homeowners finance the purchase of a home with a mortgage. This generally proves to be a smart financial decision for a couple of reasons. First, while interest over the term of the loan can mean the homeowner repays the principal several times over, this isn't necessarily a burden or a negative. Recognize that as the years go on, 
repayment is made with inflation dollars. For example, if the monthly mortgage payment in 1996 was $1,000, in 2006 it only cost $781.39 in terms of spending power. Second, interest on the home mortgage may be fully deductible. Deductible interest for indebtedness incurred after October 13, 1987 is limited to acquisition indebtedness and home equity debt up to certain amounts. In both instances, the mortgage cannot exceed the value of the home if interest is to be fully deductible. Interest on acquisition indebtedness up to $1 million is fully deductible. Acquisition indebtedness is debt incurred to purchase, construct, or substantially improve a principal residence or second home that is secured by the home. Thus, the interest is deductible on two homes. People with two or more vacation homes can designate which of these will be taken into account when deducting mortgage interest. For 2007, there is a new deduction allowed for mortgage insurance premiums. If a home buyer cannot put enough down when obtaining a mortgage, usually at least 20% of the purchase price, the home buyer must carry mortgage insurance to guarantee the payment of the loan in case he or she becomes disabled or dies. This insurance is sold by commercial insurers and is also available through government loan programs, including the Veterans Administration, the Rural Housing Administration, and the Federal Housing Administration. The insurance can be canceled when the home's equity is at least 20%. Only for insurance obtained in 2007, the premiums are treated as interest and deductible as an itemized deduction. The amount of the premiums that can be deducted is subject to a phase-out based on the homeowner's adjusted gross income. Premiums are fully deductible if AGI does not exceed $100,000. For every $1,000 of AGI above the $100,000 limit, there is a 10% reduction in the amount of premiums treated as deductible interest. This means that no deduction is allowed when AGI exceeds $110,000. The same AGI limit applies for single filers and on joint returns. For married couples filing separately, only half the usual limits, or $50,000 and $500, applies. Here's a practice pointer. Premiums paid after 2007 on mortgage insurance obtained in 2007 continues to be deductible. It remains to be seen whether Congress will extend the 2007 limit on obtaining this coverage. Deductible interest also includes interest on home equity debt up to $100,000. This is debt incurred for any other purpose, home-related or otherwise, and is secured by a principal residence or second home. This treatment applies to both a home equity loan and a home equity line of credit. In effect, this borrowing arises when the home is used as collateral on a loan, the proceeds of which are used for something other than the home, such as paying off credit card debt, purchasing a vacation home, or paying for a vacation, a child's wedding, or a college education. Combining these limits, the maximum amount of debt on which interest is fully deductible is $1,100,000. $1 million in acquisition indebtedness plus $100,000 home equity debt. Another practice pointer. It's generally advisable to take as large a mortgage as possible when purchasing a home because of the $1 million limit. The balance can always be paid down at the homeowner's choosing if personal or financial interests dictate. But once the purchase is made, 
Adding debt generally is subject to the $100,000 limit. What about refinancing in view of today's interest rate climate? Many homeowners who initially were able to afford their residence by obtaining an adjustable rate mortgage may wish to refinance now to lock in a relatively low fixed rate. This presents two issues, whether the refinancing is treated as acquisition debt and how to handle the deductibility of points paid on the mortgage. If the refinancing is merely for the same amount as the outstanding mortgage, then the refinanced amount is treated as acquisition debt, even though it may occur years after the purchase of the home. If a homeowner takes out equity at the time of refinancing, the mortgage is viewed as two pieces. One piece is acquisition debt to the extent of the old loan balance on the mortgage used to buy the home. The second piece is home equity debt for any additional borrowing, unless the additional amounts are used to substantially improve the home. In other words, if the excess borrowing is used for a home improvement project, such as remodeling a kitchen or adding a room, it can be treated as acquisition debt. What about points on refinancing a loan? The IRS position is that if a homeowner refinances an outstanding mortgage, points on the refinancing must be amortized over the term of the loan. They cannot be deducted in the year of payment. A practice pointer. Homeowners who have serially refinanced can deduct remaining points on a refinance when they subsequently refinance. For example, if a homeowner refinanced a mortgage in January 2004, paying $1,800, and then refinances in January 2007 because interest rates are even lower than in 2004, he or she will have deducted a total of only $180, $60 in 2004, 2005, and 2006. He or she can deduct the remaining $1,620 in 2007, the year of refinancing for the second time. Now let's look at real estate taxes, which for many homeowners is a significant annual expense. Real estate taxes on any property, a main residence, or one or more vacation homes are fully deductible. There is no dollar limit, income requirements, or other conditions for deductibility. However, if one spouse holds title to the home and the other pays the taxes, they're deductible only if the couple files a joint return. Many homeowners pay a monthly amount into escrow with the lender to cover real estate taxes. Payments are deductible only when funds are dispersed from the account to the taxing authority, not when the homeowners pay the funds into escrow. As a practical matter, the lender furnishes homeowners with an annual statement detailing the amount of real estate taxes they can deduct. In the year of purchase and the year of sale, property taxes must be allocated to the portion of the year in which the taxpayer owned the home. The buyer can deduct the portion of the tax, including the date of sale, through the end of the year. The seller deducts the portion from the start of the year to the day before the date of sale. Homeowners may want to prepay taxes that would be due, say in January, before the end of the year to obtain an immediate write-off. A practice pointer. Do not prepay taxes if doing so would trigger or increase the alternative minimum tax. What happens if the home is damaged or destroyed by a fire or other casualty, or it's subject to condemnation? Homeowners may have tax losses or tax gains. Yes, even tax gains, though they've suffered a loss. First, determine whether there's a gain or loss. 
Generally, a gain results when insurance proceeds and any other amounts received exceed the adjusted basis of the damaged or destroyed home. Typically, when such an event occurs, the homeowner can recover something on the homeowner's policy, and this can easily exceed the home's adjusted basis, especially for a home that's been owned for a number of years. The homeowner's coverage should keep pace with the value of the home, but obviously the adjusted basis of the home does not change unless capital improvements are made. Often, however, an incident isn't covered. For example, a home may be damaged by a flood, but the homeowner may not carry separate flood insurance. Alternatively, instead of insurance, a homeowner may obtain payments from the government, as in the case of a condemnation. Again, there may be a gain or there may be a loss for tax purposes. If a homeowner receives disaster relief payments from the government, they may be treated as tax-free grants in the nature of general welfare payments. That was the case with state payments to homeowners forced to incur repair costs because of storm damage to their homes. At this time, please refer to the study questions in your outline. Generally, the home sale exclusion that we'll discuss in a moment can be used to shield gain from taxation. The same limit of $250,000, or $500,000 on a joint return, that applies to the home sale exclusion also applies to damage or destruction of a home. If the exclusion is not available, that is, the ownership and use test discussed in a minute is not satisfied, or the amount of the gain exceeds the exclusion amount, the gain can be deferred under the involuntary conversion rules. This requires the purchase of a replacement residence within set time limits. Two years for a personal residence that is damaged or destroyed by a casualty event that is not a presidentially declared disaster or that's condemned. Or four years for a personal residence damaged or destroyed in a presidentially declared disaster. If the residence is damaged or destroyed in a presidentially declared disaster, some of the gain becomes non-taxable and the balance can be deferred more easily than for other involuntary conversions. There is no tax on gain from insurance proceeds received for unscheduled personal property in the home. Unscheduled personal property means property not listed on a separate schedule or rider to the homeowner's policy. There is no dollar limit to this tax break for the unscheduled contents of a home damaged or destroyed in a presidentially declared disaster area. Insurance proceeds for scheduled losses of personal property are treated as received for a single item rather than for each separate item. So, gain on this insurance pool can be deferred by reinvesting in replacement property that's similar or related to the residence and or the contents. For example, say that gain from scheduled losses is $30,000. This can be applied toward the cost of a replacement residence or used to buy new personal items for the home. If the unlikely event produces a tax loss, and if certain conditions are met, the loss is deductible. These are the conditions. The loss must result from a sudden, unexpected event, such as a storm or fire. The amount of loss must be reduced by $100. And the loss is deductible as an itemized deduction only to the extent it exceeds 10% of adjusted gross income. There are also certain energy-saving improvements that can give rise to a tax credit. More specifically, there is a 10% credit for buying qualified energy efficiency improvements. The maximum credit for all tax years is $500. No more than $200 of the credit can be attributable to expenses for windows.
To qualify, a component must meet or exceed the criteria established by the 2000 International Energy Conservation Code, including supplements, and must be installed in the taxpayer's main home in the United States. No credit is allowed for energy improvements to a vacation home. Eligible improvements include the following. Insulation systems that reduce heat loss or gain. Exterior windows, including skylights. Exterior doors. And metal roofs meeting applicable Energy Star requirements. The following items are eligible. $50 for each advanced main air circulating fan. $150 for each qualified natural gas, propane, or oil furnace or hot water boiler. And $300 for each item of qualified energy-efficient property. The credit for residential energy improvements applies only to those made in 2006 and 2007. There is also a credit available for adding qualified solar panels, solar water heating equipment, or a fuel cell power plant to main homes. In general, a qualified fuel cell power plant converts a fuel into electricity using electrochemical means, has an electricity-only generation efficiency of more than 30%, and generates at least 0.5 kilowatts of electricity. Taxpayers are allowed one credit equal to 30% of the qualified investment in a solar panel up to a maximum credit of $2,000 and another equivalent credit for investing in a solar water heating system. No part of either system can be used to heat a pool or hot tub. There is a 30% tax credit for the purchase of qualified fuel cell power plants. The credit may not exceed $500 for each 0.5 kilowatt of capacity. The credit for residential solar energy and fuel cells applies in 2006 through 2008. Congress may, of course, extend this break again. It had originally been set to run only through 2007. Here's a practice pointer. The credit is figured on Form 5695, Residential Energy Credits, and the amount of the credit reduces the homeowner's basis. Now let's consider the tax break available on the sale of a home, one of the main reasons why home ownership is called a tax shelter. Gain on the sale of a principal residence is excludable up to $250,000, or $500,000 on a joint return. This means that some or all of the gain on a sale may be fully tax-free, and this break can be repeated every two years under the right circumstances. But homeowners must follow the rules carefully to ensure that they are eligible for the break. To qualify for this exclusion, the homeowner must have owned and used the home as his or her principal residence for at least two of the five years preceding the date of sale, unless certain exceptions apply. There is a special rule for a homeowner who becomes disabled and moves to a nursing facility. If the homeowner becomes unable to care for him or herself because of a physical or mental disability and has owned and lived in the home for at least one year, then any residence in a nursing home or other care facility is treated as a residence within the individual's home for purposes of the home sale exclusion. For members of the Uniformed Services or Foreign Service, there is a special break. An individual homeowner can opt to suspend any period in which the homeowner or the homeowner's spouse served on qualified official extended duty. For example, if a military officer bought a home in 1999 and lived in it as his or her main home for two and a half years, but spent the next six years overseas, he or she could still qualify for a home sale exclusion in 2007. 
the officer can elect to suspend the five-year period so that the six years overseas would not prevent meeting the two out of five years test for ownership and use. The suspension cannot be more than 10 years, meaning that there is a total 15-year period within which to qualify for the home sale exclusion. The suspension is allowed only for one property, but a prior suspension can be revoked by the homeowner. The exclusion applies only to the sale of a main home. It does not apply to a vacation home. Under final regulations, the main home is the one in which the homeowner lives for the greater part of the year. However, certain facts and circumstances can be used to prove that a residence used for the lesser part of the year was the main home. Some of these factors include the taxpayer's place of employment, the address listed on tax returns, the location of the taxpayer's bank, and where the taxpayer maintained membership in a religious institution. Gain on the sale of a vacant lot subdivided from the parcel with the home can qualify for the exclusion. The sale of the lot must take place within two years of the sale of the main home. Only one exclusion amount applies to the sale of the two parcels, the vacant lot and the portion with the home. Gain on the sale of a vacation home does not qualify for this exclusion. However, a vacation home can be converted to a main home and be eligible for the exclusion. For example, suppose a couple owns two homes and sells the main residence in 2007, moving to their second home and then using it as their main home for at least two years. If it is then sold, the gain will qualify for the exclusion. Let's consider title to the home and its impact on eligibility to claim the exclusion. If title to a married couple's home is held by one spouse, the $500,000 exclusion can be claimed on a joint return so long as both spouses meet the two-year use test. When a couple divorces and title to the jointly owned home is transferred to one spouse, the spouse receiving title can treat the other spouse's period of ownership as his or her own period, if necessary, to satisfy the two-year requirement. Also, when a couple divorces and title is jointly held, but only one spouse retains possession of the home, the spouse who does not have possession can treat the other's period of use as his or her own for purposes of satisfying the two-year requirement when the home is sold sometime in the future. A homeowner who transfers his or her residence to a grantor trust does not lose the opportunity to claim the exclusion. Since the homeowner becomes the owner of the trust, the trust qualifies for the exclusion so long as the trust beneficiary, the former homeowner, satisfies the use test. When unmarried joint owners sell a home, each owner is entitled to an exclusion amount of $250,000, which can be applied to their share of the gain for their respective interests in the home. For example, if unmarried partners jointly own a home and sell it for a profit of $400,000, neither will owe any taxes on the sale, because each can exclude up to $200,000 of gain, assuming that the use test is satisfied. When a surviving spouse sells a home, the $500,000 exclusion applies only in the year of the spouse's death. In subsequent years, the surviving spouse is limited to a $250,000 exclusion. In effect, the surviving spouse may be treated as married filing jointly for a number of purposes, such as the standard deduction and tax rates. But for purposes of the home sale exclusion, the status is limited to the year of death. But the surviving spouse can treat the decedent's period of ownership as his or her own period if necessary to satisfy the two-year ownership and use test. An executor of a deceased homeowner can claim the exclusion on behalf of the decedent's estate, 
if the decedent met the two-year requirement and entered into a contract for the sale of the home prior to death. A trustee in bankruptcy can claim the exclusion for a home included as part of the bankruptcy estate if the bankrupt homeowner satisfies the two-year requirement. The regulations make it clear that the IRS will not challenge the position of a trustee taken prior to the effective date of the regulations in view of the IRS's acquiescence in a case that allowed the exclusion to be claimed by the trustee under these circumstances. One of the most troubling questions about the home sale exclusion had been the impact of claiming a home office deduction on the exclusion. Many experts believe that gain with respect to the portion of the main home used as a home office could not qualify for the exclusion. However, the regulations permit the exclusion to be used for the entire home, with no apportionment required for the home office, so long as the home office is within the dwelling unit. Of course, any depreciation claim for the home office after May 6, 1997 must still be recaptured upon the sale. The exclusion cannot be used to offset this recapture amount, which is taxed at a 25% capital gain rate for homeowners in tax brackets at or above 25%. As you may know, homeowners who sell their residence before meeting the two-year ownership and use test may qualify for a partial exclusion if the sale is motivated by a change in employment or health or other unforeseen circumstances. The amount of the exclusion is based on the period that the test is satisfied. So if after one year of ownership and use, a homeowner's employer relocates her across the country, she can claim one-half of the exclusion amount. The regulations and numerous subsequent letter rulings clarify the circumstances constituting a change in employment or health or other unforeseen circumstances. Homeowners can rely on a safe harbor to prove that the sale related to a change of employment if they satisfy a test similar to that used for the moving expense deduction. For purposes of the home sale exclusion, this means that the homeowner is required to move more than 50 miles from his or her former employer, if employed, or 50 miles from his or her place of residence, if unemployed. But even if this test is not satisfied, homeowners can still argue that the sale was motivated by a change in employment using facts and circumstances. A relocation prescribed by a physician for specific health reasons will show that the sale is motivated by health and entitles the homeowner to a partial exclusion. A change to a warmer or drier climate motivated by personal preference would not seem to be a health reason, even if there are health benefits. The tax code does not define this term unforeseen circumstances, but regulations provide important clarification. The examples that we'll discuss in a moment are not the exclusive circumstances for which a partial exclusion may be claimed. Again, homeowners can argue facts and circumstances. Unforeseen circumstances include Natural or man-made disasters, such as war and acts of terrorism. Death of a qualified individual. A qualified individual includes the homeowner, homeowner's spouse, co-owner, or an individual whose principal residence is that of the homeowner, such as the homeowner's dependent. Cessation of or change in employment or self-employment by a qualified individual. Taxpayers who qualify for unemployment benefits or those whose change in employment leaves them unable to pay the mortgage or other basic living expenses meet this test. Divorce or legal separation. And multiple births resulting from the same pregnancy. A home sale motivated solely by personal preference, such as buying a bigger home following a job promotion or winning the lottery, 
or trying to cash in on a home's appreciation won't qualify as an unforeseen circumstance. In your study guide, you'll find a list of qualifying unforeseen circumstances ruled on privately by the IRS. Due to the escalating prices of homes over the past several years, longtime owners may find that their gain exceeds the exclusion amount. Gain in excess of this amount is taxed as capital gain at a 15% rate, or lower in some cases. In order to minimize or avoid any excess gain, homeowners should pay attention to basis. The basis in the home can be increased so that gain is reduced by adding capital improvements to the home over the course of years. These include room additions, a swimming pool or tennis court, new roof, landscaping, sprinkler systems, septic tanks, boilers, insulation, kitchen and bathroom renovations, kitchen and laundry appliances, and more. Here's a practice pointer. Homeowners should maintain records of the cost of capital improvements even if they expect the exclusion to cover future gain. You just never know. Basis is reduced by any energy credits, as well as by any casualty losses claimed for the home. It is possible, under the right circumstances, to apply the exclusion as well as claim deferral for a like-kind exchange and create even greater tax savings. This can be achieved by converting a home to rental property and then exchanging it for other rental property under the like-kind exchange rules. So long as the exchange occurs within the time that allows the seller to meet the two-year test for the exclusion, both breaks can be used. For example, say a single homeowner bought a residence in 2002 for $210,000 and converted it to rental property in 2006. The house is rented until 2008, when it is exchanged for another rental property worth $460,000. He also receives $10,000 cash on the exchange, and total depreciation claimed on the house during the rental period equals $20,000. On the exchange, he realizes a $280,000 gain, which is the $470,000 comprising the replacement house plus cash, minus his basis of $190,000, which reflects his original cost of $210,000 less $20,000 depreciation. Since the house was rented for less than three of the five years before the exchange, he satisfies the two-year test and also the like-kind exchange rules. Of the $280,000 gain, $250,000 is fully excludable. The remaining $30,000, which includes $20,000 of depreciation, is deferred. The $10,000 cash boot on the exchange is not recognized because it does not exceed the excluded gain. Of course, not all homes appreciate in value. Taxpayers may have a home that's declined in value. If it's sold, no loss can be claimed on the sale of the home. The loss is a personal, non-deductible loss. This tax treatment was demonstrated in a case where a taxpayer who was building a home ran into problems with the contractor. He sold the partially built home and all the building permits to a trust set up by a business consultant and claimed a loss on his return. The court barred the loss because at all times the taxpayer held the property for personal use and not for resale, even though he never lived in the home. When a homeowner realizes that the value of the home is declining, he or she may want to convert it to rental property. Doing so ensures that any loss after the conversion is a deductible capital loss. The basis of the home for purposes of figuring depreciation following a conversion to rental property 
is the lower of the home's fair market value on the date of conversion or its adjusted basis, which is usually its cost. A sale is reported to the IRS on Form 1099-S only if the sale proceeds exceed the exclusion amount. A home sale need not be reported on a seller's return if the entire gain is excludable. This is so even if a Form 1099-S has been issued. At this time, please review the study questions in your outline. The last area we want to discuss about home ownership is how to achieve a tax benefit without having to sell the home. We alluded to this a little earlier in our discussion of refinancing. Homeowners who need to raise funds and have sufficient equity in the home can take out a mortgage or a second mortgage to extract cash. There is no tax on borrowing. The proceeds are tax-free. Older homeowners in need of additional cash may opt for a reverse mortgage. This is a type of loan that pays the owner in a lump sum or with annuity-type payments, with no immediate repayment requirements. Generally, the loan, plus interest, is not repaid until the home is sold or the homeowner dies or moves permanently from the home, to a nursing home, for example. A reverse mortgage is restricted to homeowners age 62 and older and is usually available only to homeowners whose homes are not encumbered by any loans. The amount of the loan is determined by the value of the home, as well as the homeowner's age, the type of loan program, and the costs of the loan program. Homeowners can also rent out the residence to bring in rental income. If the rental period does not exceed 14 days, then the rent, regardless of amount, is tax-free. Deductions allowed to homeowners, real estate taxes, mortgage interest, and casualty losses, continue to be allowed. However, no deduction may be claimed for advertising for the rental, cleaning the residence, depreciation, utilities, or maintenance costs for the rental period. If the home is rented for 15 days or more, and personal use exceeds 14 days or 10% of the days rented, then special rules apply. What is personal use? This use includes all days you use the home, other than primarily for making repairs or getting the property ready for tenants. It also includes days in which the home is used by your spouse, children, grandchildren, parents, siblings or grandparents, or is rented to anyone who pays less than a fair rental amount. It also includes any days in which the home is used by a person under a reciprocal arrangement that allows you to use his or her or some other home during the year. Here's a practice pointer. Personal use does not include any days in which a vacation home is rented to a relative for a fair market rental. A fair market rental is the amount that would be paid by a third party but personal use does include the time you allow a charity to use the home for fundraising. For example, the charity auctions off a week's stay at your beachfront home, and the auction winner uses your home for that week. For shared equity financing arrangements, use of the home by the co-owner is not treated as personal use if each has an undivided ownership interest in the home for more than 50 years, and the co-owner pays a fair rental to the other owner. Absent this payment of rent, a co-owner's use is treated as the other's personal use. If the 14 days 10% of use rule applies, then deductions for the vacation home are limited to rental income. No loss can be taken on the rental of the vacation home. The term loss means deductions in excess of rental income. It does not, in this context, relate to the sale of the vacation home. The tax law prescribes the order for figuring which expenses are deductible and how much. In broad strokes, 
The ordering of deductions is as follows. First, mortgage interest, real estate taxes, and casualty losses can be claimed. These are the very deductions that can be claimed without respect to rental income. Second, operating costs, which include repairs, utilities, insurance, management agency fees, and cleaning, can be taken to the extent of rental income not yet offset by the expenses in the first category. Third, depreciation can be taken if there is any excess rental income after taking write-offs from the first and second categories. The MACRS recovery period for rental real estate is 27 and a half years. In figuring depreciation, use the lower of the home's fair market value or adjusted basis. Expenses are allocated by a fraction. The numerator is the total number of days that the home was rented at a fair rental value. The denominator is the total number of days of both rental and personal use. Let's take an example to see how this rule operates in practice. Assume that an owner rents out her vacation home for the summer months, say 90 days, and uses it herself for a 30-day month. The allocation of expenses is based on a fraction of 90 days over 120 days, so that three-quarters of all expenses for the entire year relate to rental income. She can deduct three-quarters of mortgage interest and real estate taxes up to the amount of rental income. If there is excess rental income, she deducts three-quarters of operating costs against it. Then, if there is still any excess rental income, it can be used to take depreciation on the home. The portion of real estate taxes and mortgage interest not deducted against rental income can be deducted as itemized expenses to the extent we discussed earlier. If the home is rented out for 15 days or more, but personal use doesn't exceed 14 days or 10% of the rental use, then rental expenses become fully deductible subject to two key limitations. The homeowner must show, under the hobby loss rules, that there is a profit motive in renting out the home. The homeowner can deduct rental losses only to the extent of passive activity income. In conclusion, owning a home and perhaps a second home can provide a highly effective tax shelter. Home ownership can generate write-offs for the period of ownership and holds the potential for tax-free income when the main home is sold. The IRS has valuable publications for homeowners which are listed in your study guide and can be downloaded from the IRS website. At this time, please review the study question in your outline. And that concludes this CCH CPE podcast. As a reminder, if you're interested in earning valuable continuing professional education credits, please enroll in this course at cchpodcast.com. In our next CCH CPE podcast, we'll focus on another area of importance for your practice and we'll provide commentary on some current developments that can be useful to your clients. We thank you for listening to this edition and hope you have found this program to be a valuable and interesting learning tool. And on that note, we'll bring this CCH CPE podcast to a close. Until our next podcast, goodbye and good luck in your tax work. CCH audio programs are published to promote sound thought in economic, legal, and accounting principles relating to tax and business law. CCH's editorial policy is to allow frank discussion in these areas. The opinions and interpretations expressed are those of the authors. CCH is not engaged herein in rendering legal, accounting, or other professional services, and the authors are not offering such advice in this program. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.